welcome to Exploring Filipino Kitchens. I'm your host, Nastasha Ali. Today we're talking with Betty Ann Bessa Quirino, an author, recipe developer, and prolific blogger whose thoughts and experiences on cooking has personally helped me develop confidence in my own cooking abilities to become part of what keeps global Filipino food culture alive. I've been reading Betty Ann's blog called AsianInAmericaMag.com for a while now, pretty much since I started cooking Filipino recipes from scratch. What I love most about Betty Ann's writing is that it's very personal. She writes truthfully, and like the best blogs, I always feel like I've walked away with some kind of reward or treasure after reading her posts about cooking Filipino food at her home in New Jersey. So I asked Betty Ann if we could talk about home cooking, and particularly the kind of Filipino home cooking that first and second generation Filipinos who grow up in the U.S. know. And these are lessons that apply to understanding every kind of food culture, not just that of Filipinos. There's a deep love for food that's simultaneously comforting and also like really ecstatic. Between friends, I found that although our love for the food runs deep, there's still a bit of apprehension with actually cooking the dishes we crave, either because we know our moms make it best, or we're not familiar enough with the cooking techniques and get this fear that we just ruin a dish, uh, or that, would, that would take over. Or maybe that's just me, but it's a really familiar feeling. So this episode, we're talking about what it's like to cook Filipino food at home. And I can't promise that we won't make you hungry. Hello, Natasha, and hello to all your podcast listeners. My name is Betty Ann Bessa Quirino, and I'm a Filipina at heart who lives in America. Um, I live in northwestern New Jersey. I'm a writer by profession. I'm a cookbook author, a journalist. And I'm also an artist. Betty has also written a book about her husband's grandfather, a former president of the Philippines named Elpidio Quirino. The foundation they've helped start continues to advocate for accessible education among students and teachers in the Philippines. Betty Ann's an active member of several research and journalism committees as well, including the International Association of Culinary Professionals based in New York, and a group called the Culinary Historians of the Philippines. Right now, I'm a correspondent for Positively Filipino, a premier online magazine that publishes out of San Francisco. And I have a blog called Asian in America, where I transform traditional Filipino dishes to modern meals in my American kitchen. I've been reading Asian in America mag for several years now, and that's one of the things that I found really manifested itself in your blog posts because it was a really big, um, 
I guess, like, inspiration, too, because around about the time that you started your blog, I guess, uh, there weren't that many Filipino recipe blogs online at the time. And uh, I remember that was when, around the time we first moved to Canada, and I, you know, like, if I would start to crave some things, I would start searching for recipes. So I'd always come across your, your recipes online there, and I always enjoyed the stories. And that was such a big part of uh, the cooking for me is that there's always a story involved uh, about like you know the Philippines and like life in America and like that kind of thing well, thank you that's, that's so encouraging to hear and I, I'm flattered um, I didn't realize people paid attention to my stories um, <laughs> it's, it's just you know and I, I was beginning to feel that I was boring people and I, I don't want to come off as a very self-centered person in my writing so I Lately, I've been trying to cut shorter my my stories, but um, but that's interesting to know. I think it is really valuable, um, and I guess it kind of eye opening in a little in in some way too, because for Filipinos sometimes we still kind of have this tendency to feel a little bit shy about ourselves and our cooking I guess um, so even for example if I'm cooking at home with my mom like we'll talk about like making dinner or something or cooking Filipino food and then I'll tell her that you know I cook this for my boyfriend who's not Filipino and she'll go oh well it's just lumpia like would he like some and I'm like yeah he actually really does <laughs> so I really like that uh, you're stories are very descriptive and it's I guess a mark of a good a journalistic take on it oh thank you now I'm looking at my blog and I'm, I'm wondering really she likes my blog <laughs> want to ask you about it and uh, some of my friends who are also know about AsianAndAmericanMag.com because of uh, all the recipes that you've published over the years. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how the blog started? Oh, okay, sure. I'd love to. Um, first of all, the blog is a recent writing platform. I have been a writer all my career life. I have a degree in communication arts from St. Paul University in Manila. So right out of college, I worked as a copywriter for an ad agency. And for many years, that was my life. I was very proud because I was trained by the best in the industry in the Philippines. It was a lot of hard work, but I learned so much. You know, it was a very diverse industry and field. And you learn to write for everything, motor fuel, airline, cars. Butter, noodles, ice cream, beauty soaps, detergents, and our clients were Procter and Gamble, Johnson and Johnson, San Miguel Corporation, Nestle, and, and those are some of the largest corporations in the Philippines. And um, it was hard work, but I was trained by the best, so that honed my writing skills. And if that wasn't enough, Oh, I also was a college professor for Assumption College when we were living in the Philippines, and I taught creative writing and advertising. Now, that's impressive. So, how did being an advertising copywriter and college professor lead to the blog, I asked. And then we moved to the U.S., and of course, life was different, totally different. You know, it's totally different from what you see in the movies and magazines, and it just shatters everything you, you dreamt about living in America. 
And this was the first of several real talk kind of moments during my conversation with Betty Ann that stuck with me. That difficulty of adjusting to life in another country as a new immigrant. I understand what she means by how it shatters you, perhaps not always in a way that other people can see, but you kind of know is real. Anyone who started life in a new country inevitably becomes familiar with that feeling of being very far away from the world and the family you know, with a day-to-day -day reality that doesn't always match up to what most other people think life in America is going to be like. Our children were very small. Our youngest son was only three years old, so of course I opted to stay home and, and raise them. Even if I had offers to work in uh, ad agencies, but New York City is like 50, 60 miles away, and I just wanted to do that and leave the children. So, you know, I, was, I, I took on some part-time jobs along the way just to be close to home, research jobs. I also taught language at Berlitz uh, Learning Center because I'm also fluent in Spanish, so I was teaching um, professional Spanish to English. Uh, and so those were things that kept me occupied as my children were growing. And before I knew it, they were soon off to college. I had been home cooking the whole time in all my life. That was the norm for our family, home cooking. And so, with the help of her American-raised children who became digital product designers and cross-platform journalists, AsianInAmericaMag.com became one of the first Filipino recipe blogs that consistently landed in top search results for Filipino recipes. I was afraid that my sons would be eating junk food when they go off to college. So I started writing recipes in a yellow pad for them. But uh, being millennials, they preferred something digital. So they told me, Mom, you need to have a blog. So then my son, Tim, who is now a product designer at Facebook, he told me, I'll create it for you, and I'll only teach you once. Then you're on your own. My youngest son, Constante, is a journalist and a communications major. Both of them went to Drexel University in Philadelphia. Constante also gave me tips on writing for online publications. So that's how the blog started. It was a desire of a mother to, um, to make sure that her sons were well-fed while they were away from home. And even the name, you know, was off the cuff and done in a hurry because we were at the dining table and my son Tim, the older one, was typing away and he said, okay, what name do you want? Oh, I don't know, I said. Yeah, you know, so I blurted out the first thing that came to mind. I I had no idea what I was doing. But be, both of them said, Mom, you're a writer and you write about food. So you'll know what this is all about, they both said. So that's how it started. And um, I had a camera, but it wasn't a nice one. And eventually my husband started giving me for birthdays and Christmas camera lighting equipment, and the boys did the same. And, and, you know, now they give me props for my blog or for my cooking or whatever. So, so it has grown. It was a writing platform at the start for me, and it grew.
I love that story that you just shared with us because one of the things that I really like about blogs is that it allows you to kind of be very intimate, I guess, with your writing and in a way that you can share it with other people. And I, I was smiling as you were telling me the story about how your sons had encouraged you to, to start it and prompted you to start doing the recipes and recording them online because it's such a great example of how really very family-oriented a lot of these types of projects begin, especially with cooking and especially with Filipino cooking. <laughs> Food, family, and, and cooking has always been central in, in our lives. Like I told you, home cooking has been the norm for us ever since. And my uh, my sons, I, I taught them how to cook. And now I'm very proud they do better than me in the kitchen. It's always a feast when, when they come home and, you know, there's so much noise. We fight. They shoo me away from the kitchen. You know, they, now they think they know better. And they do. They actually do. So it's a very fulfilling and gratifying feeling, and I'm very proud of it. And I'm proud of how they turned out. And I, I, I'm so happy when I hear from people that they read my blog, they love my recipes. You know, it, it's always my intention to help somebody, to share a recipe. If I can make somebody's day better, then that gives me a lot of happiness. As it should. And uh, it's to me as well, like personally, that's what I find very rewarding about it is really being able to share, I guess, that experience as well as the, the story too. I grew up in a very rural agricultural province. My father was a farmer. He was an agricultural businessman. We owned farms, rice fields and sugarcane fields. And I was raised in that kind of environment, and our home had a large backyard. We had cattle, and we had piggery, and we had chickens and goose, and I can't even remember what other animals we had. I mentioned over email a few times that really when I started learning how to cook the Filipino food, it was really when like I moved from out of my, my parents' house because I was taking college downtown. And um, with a lot of uh, Filipino families too, there's still kind of the tendency where, you know, oh, you know, my mom will cook it or I'll come home. And then there's always like something that someone in your family has made. And then uh, after I moved out, it was like, oh, you know, I'm craving adobo or pancit and all that. And I'm like, oh, well, I have to learn how to make it <laughs> because no one else uh, will will be able to make it for me unless I go to get some takeout or something. So it's it's very reflective of um, me kind of realizing that so many of these um, these food traditions that I kind of just didn't really care about much while I was growing up became really important as I became an adult. And I guess that's kind of what I'm finding in in your blog posts and recipes over the years too. They're kind of like a marker of life and things that you're experiencing and like that kind of thing. Naturally, I wanted to know more about how all of this started for Betty Ann, so I asked her to tell us about where she grew up. You know, I, I grew up in a very rural agricultural province. Um, Tarlac was my home province. Um, 
I was in, I, I grew up, I was raised in Tarlac up to um, high school. And then I went to college in Manila. But my father, by nature, by profession, was um, was a farmer. He was an agricultural businessman. Um, we owned we owned farms and we owned uh, rice fields and and sugarcane uh, fields. And um, I was raised in that kind of environment. And and our our home had a large, huge backyard in the back, and we had. We had cattle and we had piggery and we we had chickens and and goose and I can't, I can't even remember what other animals we had and then we had fruit trees and vegetable crops and that was my way of life growing up. I didn't step into a supermarket to buy food until much later. By the time I was nearly a teenager, as a child, I remember being tasked with collecting the eggs from the chickens we were raising. And for as long as I remember, there were always brown eggs because that's how farm-raised, free-range chickens lay eggs. So for years, I would collect the eggs and put them in a basket. And later on, when we went to the city, and by this time I was, I think it was fourth grade or fifth grade, and my first experience to see uh, white eggs in the supermarket, I was shocked. And the first thing I asked was, who washed them? Why are they white? As if to say, why do these eggs look different from what they should be? They should be brown, right? So, you know, that was my kind of upbringing. Everything we had on the table was from produce that he grew in the backyard or our farm. And, you know, as the seasons came and went, then our vegetables and fruits were seasonal. And that's how I learned to cook. I started going into the kitchen as soon as I could reach the kitchen counter. One of my first tasks was to uh, trim the edges of sitao, long green beans. I remember that. That's why I love sitao, because that was my, one of my first tasks, to remove the edges of it with my fingers first. And later, when I was old enough to hold a knife, I was assigned to cut it into smaller pieces to be cooked. That's the magic of bringing kids into the kitchen, pretty much as soon as you can trust them to keep their hands off of hot items, because those are the kinds of lessons that need to be learned. They need to be internalized in their own way. I totally remember snapping the ends off from these bright green beans, like the yard-long ones Betty Ann talked about. They've got this little snap to them when you break them off, kind of how you're supposed to snap off the woody ends of an asparagus stalk at the point where they naturally break. It's a good task to give, like, six or an eight-year-old, maybe, get them all set up in the kitchen, prep some vegetables next to the grown-ups while they're cooking. It's the kind of stuff that sticks until you're grown and you have your own little kitchen helpers to share that kind of experience with. kinds of food memories, in the end, are the things that drive us to write the stories that matter. The stories that we get to tell from our own perspectives and in our own voice, driven by that need to connect with some part of ourselves that we're looking for, or maybe have lost, in the now or the reality of our everyday lives.
This next story is about Mango Jam, and it's Betty Ann's award-winning piece in a food writing competition that's like the gold standard of Philippine food writing. I saw on your website you have the book Savor the Word, the Doreen Gamboa Fernandez writing award essays, and my essay, 100 Mangoes in a Bottle, is in that book. I won an award in 2012, and if you read that essay, it's all about making mango jam. That is a very memorable essay for me because I grew up cooking with my mother, learning from her. And mango jam in the summers were one of the most important traditions uh, we used to participate in. And fast forward life in America, a few years ago when I saw mangoes in the market, I was so excited and I said to myself, let me recreate the mango jam of my childhood. And, I, you know, I was trying and I couldn't quite get it. And then at the same time, I was refreshing my writing. So I was taking writing classes with Monica Bidet. Monica is a renowned food writer and cookbook author with a dedicated online following. Her blog about modern Indian cooking has led to several book deals, leading workshops and international conferences. And she was coaching me on different writing styles. And I told her about my mango jam experience. And then Monica basically said, that's a beautiful story. Why don't you write about it? So I, I said, yeah, why, why don't I? So she said, write an essay about how you made mango jam with your mother. So I set off to write an essay. Then I went back to my writing teacher, went back to Monica, and I said, there's a problem. I can't write the essay. And she said, why not? Do you know... I just remembered one of the most painful things I remembered is I never asked my mother for the recipe. And my mother died in 1981. So, of course, six years ago, I couldn't ask anyone anymore. And I told Monica, how sad is that? I'm I'm really, really so sad that I never asked my mother for the recipe of the mango jam. It's something we did for so many years. And... I took it for granted, and I never asked her. Why did I not ask her? I said, I know how to do it, but I don't know the measurements. I don't know how many mangoes, to, how much sugar, or the temperature, or what kind of mangoes to choose. And I was so sad, and Monica said, you know what? There's your essay. Write about the sadness. And I said, my God, that's hard. I'm going to be crying for every word. And that's what makes a good writer, she said. So I wrote the essay. Long story short, I wrote 800 words, showed it to Monica, my writing teacher, showed it to my son, showed it to my husband. And they all said, it's good. Yeah, I said, it's good. But I'm I'm not giving it to anyone, I said, and I put it away in a drawer. I kept it in a drawer for years. At that point, Betty Ann says she just wasn't ready to share something so personal yet. Something that affected her deeply, that touched upon a memory that wasn't just about food, but really about loss and regret. Then one day I saw the uh, Doreen Gamboa Fernandez writing award. They were open to submissions, and even if I was in the States, they encouraged me to, yeah, why didn't you submit? So I emailed my essay and it won an award. And Which just goes to show that if you've got a story that needs to be told, go ahead, tell it. 
because there's no other person on earth who can tell that story better than you can. I wrote the 100 mangoes in a bottle essay. Monica, my writing teacher, encouraged me to submit it to several publications. But first of all, I told her, who would be interested in this? People who don't know me are not going to care. I said, it's about my personal sadness. And there's no recipe. So ultimately, nobody will care. And she said, no, you're wrong. No, really. The thing is, you know, from my perspective is, who's going to care about my sadness? If, if you don't know me, are you going to care? Who's going to care about mangoes if they've never tasted about mangoes? I also said, it's about a rural town in a, in a province in the Philippines that people have probably never heard about. There's really no draw for the reader. That's what I kept thinking. So I kept it. <laughs> okay, what did I learn from that? Nobody else has your story. Every person is unique. And if you worry about things that have not yet happened, then it's an exercise in futility and it's, it's just going to make you crazy and you should not. I should not have said to myself, hey, nobody's going to care, you know. See what I mean by real talk? Thanks for the life advice, Tita Betian. It's It's all real in many respects. There's absolutely nothing to be gained by simply waiting for something to happen to you. I, I mean, I can't help but think of how motivationally engaging that is. To know that other people experience that same kind of vulnerability you feel, that you're not alone. Drifting away from our story for just a little bit, I just want to talk about this event I went to not long ago called Fear is Fuel, organized by my friend Jelaine, who runs this social entrepreneurship meetup group. Amazing, right? Anyway, I'm glad I went that evening. It was at a co-working space right across the Christie Pitts Park in Toronto, and at the event, there were business owners, people who ran workshops, people who were looking to find a community of other self-starter kinds of people. And honestly, taking part in that form of community engagement, for me, I think, really helps. In the end, it's kind of nice to hear that other people go through similar kinds of challenges in their lives. You could feel vulnerable about work, about relationships, life in general, but you kind of just have to learn how to overcome them. and. It's a lot easier, or at least it's a bit more comforting knowing that other people experience that same kind of fear, that same kind of vulnerability too.
Next, I wanted to hear about things that Betty Ann has learned over the years as a food blogger and recipe developer, like cooking techniques that she's honed or adapted for her North American kitchen, and examples of ingredients that she's used to substitute for more traditional Philippine fruits and vegetables. What I'm, I'm wondering, like over the years, like what time, what kinds of substitutions have you had to make? Like, say for calamansi, for example, because that's kind of a really, very popular integral thing to a lot of like Filipino cooking. But even here, it's not very easy to find. No, it's not. Um, here's the thing: as far as the uh, ingredients are concerned, substitutions have always been a challenge for me, and I, I will say. For most people who do not live close to a Filipino community, where Filipino grocers or Chinatown are, are far away, it's always a challenge. Um, how do I deal with it? First of all, I came to the realization that for the success of a recipe, there are three things that are needed. Ingredients, ease of the recipe, how easy it is to do and the delicious result. If you have those three things, those three components, then your family will have a very good meal. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's a simple adobo or an, an elaborate paella. You have to have ingredients, ease of the procedure, and a delicious result. So how does Betty Ann get that in her own kitchen? Early on, I realized I will not always have 100% of all the ingredients in my Filipino notebook or my Filipino cookbook. So I learned to memorize what flavor I wanted to achieve. And I taught this to my son. And then I kept searching and searching for the right substitute. For example, if we got invited to Filipino parties, in New York or, you know, where Filipino communities are, I will, I wouldn't ask, oh, where did you buy your calamansi or where did you buy your pancit? I wouldn't ask. I would pay attention to the flavor that was achieved. And then I'll memorize, I'll, me I'll keep that in my memory, in my mind, in my heart, you know, in my senses. And then I'll go home and try to recreate it to the best of my ability. Now, if I couldn't find... Kalamansi was only something recent that I found because it's only lately that we have frozen Kalamansi. In the early 90s, you, we had to go to Chinatown in New York, which is like 60 miles away by car for us. And even then, it was always expensive. So I wouldn't... You know, why, why do that? So later on through asking through researching and through tasting myself i found that mayor lemons are the closest in flavor to calamansi so i kept that in mind and even in my blog i say that and i i've say, said that to friends and i i share it as a cooking tip to other fellow filipinos or to those who are not filipino and who want to cook filipino food you know that that's one and you know it's everything down the line if you need a souring agent for sinigang, I know that tamarind is not unique to the Philippines, and geographically, it's used by other neighboring Asian countries. So this was like the early days of the internet in the early uh, 90s. So I researched 
for ingredients from other cultures, from other stores. You know, sometimes uh, international markets will have a wider inventory of Thai ingredients versus Filipino products. So that's where I look. And really, the 90s were not that long ago. Thinking about how difficult it was to source certain types of Asian produce then, before the arrival of today's international megamarts and online shopping, and even Asian vegetables like bok choy and those yard-long beans you were talking about available at local farmers' markets, you would really have needed to think outside the box and kind of critically about the flavors you were looking for if you couldn't get the ingredients that you wanted at the closest grocery store? Um, well, you have to remember also the origin of, of, of the dish. Um, again, I taught my sons this one. Aside from remembering what the flavor is and trying to replicate it, you have to remember that um, basic Filipino dishes in the Philippines, um, they use backyard fruits, it, you know, like sinigang, Pinakbet, uh, they always uh, use backyard fruits uh, a lot. Nilaga, you know, whatever is the produce from the backyard is what is tossed in, in the um, cauldron, and that's what you cook with. That's you know that's important to remember, and and so that that's how I learned how to substitute ingredients here in North America. You know, you you just have to remember the origin of the dish. You have to remember how it tastes like, and then you you go on your search to to try to recreate that by being creative and finding different sources. Switching gears a bit, next I wanted to talk about culinary trips and some of Betty Ann's travels to the Philippines that she'd written about online. I know earlier you were telling me about um, uh, the experience that you gained as a copywriter um, in the Philippines early on in your career, and how uh, a lot of the a lot of the skills and the lessons that you learned, uh, you know, copywriting for all these different brands and these different types of products, uh, I guess, kind of fed into uh, your approach to to writing in general with being creative. And um, I, for, for people listening as well, I'll post the links to uh, two of Betty Ann's articles on PositivelyFilipino.com. Uh, so specifically, the one that you uh, sent over to me was uh, something called Holiday Dishes with Ilocano Flavors and Day Trips to Culinary Heaven. Well, uh, the um, Ilocano Flavors, coincidentally... That was the same year that we were uh, celebrating the 125th birthday anniversary of the late President Elpidio Quirino, who was who was the uh, grandfather of, of my husband. So the entire Quirino clan was going to get together in Ilocos uh, in November 2015. Um, so even as early as a few months before the trip, here in America, I was already planning, hmm, why don't I write about, why don't I research about Ilocano food and write about it? That, you know, that, that it was rolling in my mind already, the, the different ideas, different things like I could 
uh, and what approach I, I could do because I knew I knew that we would be served the uh, flavors of the province. Uh, I knew that. And I knew that there's a big difference. Just going from one town to the next, there's a big difference in flavor and in ingredients, even if it's the same dish that you're served. Um, so that's how it came about. I already planned it even before going home to the Philippines. Now, when I got there, that was a challenge. <laughs> you know why? Because nobody, yeah, because nobody else had the mindset that I had. Um, everybody else was busy with the reunion, with the historic um, event, with getting together with relatives you haven't seen in 30 years, uh, you know, and then the heat and the traffic and, and so many other elements. So long story short, I was the only one who was interested in going, doing a deep dive of Ilocano flavors. Nobody else was thinking the way I do. Man, if I were there, I'd have loved to go around and accompany Betty Ann with her research. That would be amazing. So it was interesting. And every, you know how I went about it is that I would take as many pictures as I called. I tasted everything. Taste, not ate. You, you know, taste a little of this, a little of that. I interviewed people, and not celebrities. I interviewed ordinary people, you know, in the restaurant, in the streets. The family cook, the aunt, the cousin, the friend of the cousin, and just basically put the article together. The thing about Ilocano food is that regionally the flavors are strong and powerful and they grip you. You know, when you come from America where where the FDA controls the saltiness and the ingredients and, and required to have a list of ingredients on the labels, then you're thrown in the province. Or nobody gives a hoot what's in it, but it's delicious. Then it's really, really, really a culture, cultural experience. Okay. Um, again, you have to look at the the geography and where you are. You now, Ilocos is in the northern part of the Philippines, where the soil is barren and dry, and not good for many other vegetables and produce that are grown in other parts of the country. But there are things that survive in that kind of soil and that kind of heat. Some examples of fruit and vegetables that thrive in this environment include string beans, squashes, gourds, peppers, eggplants, some corn papaya, root crops like sweet potatoes and purple yams and a plethora of beans, okra, and the eponymous bitter melon. Believe me, it was so hot in Ilocos, hotter than any other province I have been to. Geographically, that's because we're nearly at the tip of the uh, northern part of the Philippines. You can, there's actually a part of Ilocos where you can see China from there. Now, going back to that, you have to understand the geography and what kind of uh, food that they produce. They produce a lot of garlic. That's very powerful. Sukang Iloko, made from coconut, and then they put filling labuyo with some bird's eye chilies, which 
brew is much more potent than it is here in, in America. So one of the first things I ate was the uh, vegan longanisa. They're small cured pork sausages that are very garlicky and very vinegary. You can't be in vegan Ilocosur if you if you don't try the longanisa. Uh, then I also had lechon kawali in Ilocos is called bagnet, and we had that. And, and why is it very popular there? Because then piggeries and agricultural uh, livestock are, are predominant. And then we were also served pinakbet, the vegetable stew, which is not the same as the pinakbet you eat here in America, nor the pinakbet I have in Tarlac. It's just really Ilocano pinakbet. There's a different way that they do pinakbet there, and there's different norms and customs. In Ilocos, you do not put squash in the pinakbet. Okay, you don't. A true Ilocano knows that. And if you put squash, like the kabocha squash, aha, you're not Ilocano. So it's different, and even the way it's cooked, they, they basically layer and layer and layer the vegetables in a stock pot, and then they don't mix it, they don't stir it, they just layer and layer and layer the vegetables with the uh, bagoong, the shrimp paste, and a little broth, and the onions and garlic, and some seasons, and that's it. That's the way, as simple as that. Um, we had... Something that was like um, malungay, um, moringa. Moringa is malungay. We had we had that, and it was. Ooh, now I'm getting hungry. It was just basically malungay, simmered in fish bagoong. Yeah, it was delicious. I also brought home a lot of pasalubong gifts from the travel to to friends, to my family in Tarlac and to friends in Manila. I brought back vegan longanisas, the cured pork sausages, because they were very garlicky and potent. I brought back a lot of cornic, which is uh, fried corn kernels, uh, and they were rich and full of garlic, full of adobo, spicy flavors. There were uh, native pastries. The um, vegan bibingka is different from the bibingka that we know. It's more like a cassava type of uh, coconut cake. It's, it's very delicious. I have a recipe. I have yet to make it here in America. It's, I'm afraid it won't turn out the same. You know why? With Here's what I also learned. The humidity contributes a large part to the success of the recipe. Here in North America, on the East Coast, we cannot replicate the heat and the humidity of the Philippines. But therefore, there are a lot of dishes. Even if you have 99.9%, the complete lineup of ingredients ready on your counter, it's not going to be the same. Our water is different and the heat is different. You know, it's not going to be the same. The vegan empanada was an, a legendary food that we I, I was uh, dying to, to taste. Uh, I had tried it a long, long time ago and I haven't had it. In a long time, the vegan empanada is different. It's, it's, it's a half-moon empanada. It's a half-moon-shaped large empanada. And it's from Ilocos, the ones they have there are, are almost orange in color. But that's because they put achuete or anato seeds in the, uh, in the dough. And the dough. And the dough is spread out so thin, it's almost like the, a wafer. It's almost like the lumpia wrapper. 
that's what the texture is like of the vegan empanada. And the um, the filling is made up of grated papaya and vegetables and some some meat, some pork. And then they put a raw egg inside it. They seal the filling. So it's a half moon. Imagine it's a half moon orange empanada. And then they deep fry it. Oh, and it's best eaten while it's warm and crisp. Mm, that really makes me want a vegan empanada. I know, me too. I, I'm drooling at my own sentence. Can you imagine how shameful that is? I have a recipe. I have a recipe for the vegan empanada, which I got from the family cook at the Kirino Sikia Mansion. But I'm still going to kitchen test it. Like like I told you, the, the heat and humidity of vegan is different from, you know, Flanders, New Jersey. So it's not, I'm, I'm afraid it won't be the same, but I'll do my best. So, you know, it's... The way you were describing the vegan longanisa where, you know, it's this like wafer thin half moon pastry uh, with a fried egg inside and all these like delicious, like really yummy fillings. It's the kind of stuff that like people love posting about uh, online these days. And um, a part of what I really want to do with this podcast project is tell the stories of of Filipino food from from different perspectives, from uh, the story you just shared of actually going to the province in the Philippines uh, where this particular uh, empanada is is born. It kind of reminds it reminds me and it reminds us that there, you can almost associate them as a kind of a Latin American like Spanish thing. And then it goes back to what you were saying again earlier of you know you have to remember the origins of something. Um, you know, there's there's so many different things that you can learn about. You can almost learn about, like, the history of the Philippines through, like, the different foods that we offer and then these kinds of recipes and dishes that kind of make their way through time because even simpler dishes like sinigang or adobo, those are very everyday, like, dishes that most people make because... Like you mentioned earlier, the three things to make a successful recipe are that you have the ingredients, it's easy to make, and it gives you a really like delicious result. And like all of those three things are like checked off with like the everyday uh, foods, like you know your sinigangs and stuff like that. And then it also gets checked off with like the really special like kinds of things that you eat, like the vegan empanada and stuff like that that you go on uh, like a trip for. <laughs> You know, for for this article I wrote, um, holiday dishes with Ilocano flavors. Uh, aside from asking cousins and aunts and and people and strangers about the different kinds of dishes that I tasted, I also asked my aunt. Uh, you know, I have to give credit to Attorney Aleli Quirino, Artita Lila. She's she's the daughter of Judge Antonio Quirino, who was a brother of President Alfredo Quirino, and Tita Lila had to go through the family diaries of her parents to look up some of my questions. You know, she took the time from her work. She's a lawyer. And I was pestering her about this. I said, Tita Lila, how do you make this and how do you make that? And what do you do uh, during Christmas? Do you serve this or that? And she said, let me go look at Mama's journal. So, you know, these are priceless memories, really, because there are family journals, there are family diaries that are kept, and a lot of them are confidential. But, you know, food 
it's meant to be shared. So I guess it wasn't a problem <laughs> to ask for. That's one of the things that I would really hope. Um, it's kind of a little spin-off project that I would like to do with these podcast recordings is hopefully uh, kind of encourage people in the Philippines and you know, people anywhere who want to start recording uh, their recipes, like especially now more than ever, it's so easy to uh, have a copy of these types of um, like mementos and recordings, whether you write it down or upload it uh, to your own personal blog or uh, record it on your cell phone and save it uh, as like an audio file. It's, uh, it's so important to me to be able to get these stories about the food and about your family and about uh, certain regions and places in the country because I, I, I'm looking forward to going back to the Philippines so much because there's uh, always a new, a new province that I want to visit every time because there's so many places to visit and so many things to eat. So, what's Betty Ann's advice for a curious cook like me? Let me tell you this. I used to be in your shoes. I used to be young and nervous and afraid of being scolded for doing the wrong thing. Don't be, all right? Because, and I, and I used to hate when somebody hovered behind my back while I'm cooking and breathing down my neck and would say, so what are you making? Oh, don't do that. Don't add this. Your fire is too high. No. Okay, block that all out, right? If that makes you nervous, get away from that, from that uh, moment. You know, if, if it makes you nervous that your mother is watching you when you're cooking, that your aunt is screaming at you for having a high fire, then don't cook in front of them. Do it by yourself in your own time, uh, at your own place, with ingredients you bought yourself. Then you're not accountable to anyone. Okay, number one, get away from whatever makes you nervous. First, you identify what makes me nervous. My mother, okay, she should not be around me if I'm cooking. But don't tell your mother that. I'm sure she's nice. Well, I'm telling you, eliminate the factors that make you nervous. Number two, don't don't experiment when you're about to give, uh, when you're about to serve a, a humongous amount of people. Like, if you're going to have a party, uh, serve recipes that you are used to making even if you're asleep. So that means going back, keep practicing until you learn how to make the biko properly, until you make learn how to make the puto properly and you're confident, right? The, the self-confidence comes with practice. And most of all, don't forget this. Know, learn and know what you do best and keep doing it. Um, nobody else is like you, Natasha. Nobody else is like me. Nobody else. We're all unique people. We all have our differences. And with that, like a magically timed flourish, the power went out of my apartment building because of a heavy snowstorm that was barreling outside. Talk about pulling out of the tropical paradise we almost felt like we were in, remembering trips to the Philippines and the heat of that countryside. Total contrast, it was the middle of winter, like the middle of February for both of us on the east coast, and everything outside was buried in at least a foot of snow. 
Anyway, Betty Ann ended with some valuable advice that I've definitely taken to heart. Do what you want to do, do what you love to do. Travel to the places where you know you'll get to taste the real deal. And don't be afraid of translating recipes in ways that you feel comfortable doing. That follows my personal take on cooking sous vide Filipino recipes. I've got a couple of them up on my blog. They're definitely not traditional, but I love the precision of sous vide cooking too much not to try to at least try and see what a 24-hour oxtail peanut stew would be like. Man, it's delicious. It's my super modern, slow-cooked version of kare-kare. I gotta say, the ligaments around those oxtail bones were the perfect bite. There's no other way you can get that with regular cooking. They'd melt right into the sauce. Absolutely worth it. Anyway. So, as a takeaway, Betty Ann's philosophy on cooking is something I appreciate and totally relate to. And I hope it's encouraged you to cook a Filipino dish. Maybe tonight, or if not, sometime soon. At least look up a recipe, pick up a few ingredients that you can work into your own take on a particularly Filipino dish. Forget about everything other than your desire to make something good. Because with a little bit of research and prep, it's really not that hard to create a memorable Filipino meal, whether it's a weeknight or a special occasion to share with others. My warmest thanks this episode to Betty Ann Besacurino, and please visit asianinamericamag.com for recipes. It's a good time to try one out. To follow Betty Ann on Instagram and elsewhere online as well. Music for this episode is by David Seste, Eric and McGill, Squire Tuck, and Blue Dot Sessions. Visit exploringfilipinokitchens.com for more information on the show, and do check it out, I've just updated the website with a new look, it looks pretty sleek. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. And as before, if you enjoyed the show today, please recommend it to a friend, then maybe leave me a review on iTunes, I would really appreciate it. Everything you hear on Exploring Filipino Kitchens is written and produced by me, and I'd love to keep sharing these stories about food and people from the Philippines, so every subscription helps. Maraming salamat, and thank you for listening. <laughs>